This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Approaching All Hallows' Eve, Samhain, and Day of the Dead, we are entering into the season of gratitude. It is a season of gathering, collection, and reflection, and I am so pleased to kick it off this week in conversation with artist and green spirit in our garden care world, Louisa Roebuck. You might remember my conversation with Louisa about her first photographic floral adventure of a book, Foraged Flora, a few years back. And today, I'm so excited to be in conversation with her once again, this time about her newest book, Punk Ikebana, Reimagining the Art of Floral Design, being published by Cameron Books on November 8th. With a renaissance, reminiscent, still-life-like, rich photography by Ian Hughes and a poetic introduction by O.B. Kaufman, Punk Ikebana is a wild wonder of abundance, perspective, and grounded gratitude. Welcome back to the program, Louisa. I am so pleased to be speaking together once again. Jennifer, I mean, your introduction... It's just so lovely that I almost don't know how to respond, except for that I am just incredibly grateful to be here also. And as always, the timing seems perfect. Um, this is the first interview that I'm giving for this book, and and it's completely fitting that we're having this conversation to launch that. So thank you so much for having me back again. You know, before we move to the new book, Louisa, I want you to briefly remind listeners of you know, maybe what your primary organizing principle or directive or call from the universe is about your relationship with plants right now? It's such a layered question, of course. Mm -hmm. And we are living on 13 acres now um, on a 2,600 foot ridge. And we uh, have 13 acres. I never, ever thought that I'd be able to live with, live on, live with the land in this way. And increasingly, I think the answer, I hope, is that my relationship with non-human relatives and ancestors, and that includes the plant kingdom, is in the now. It's uh, informed by our ancestors and our past, and, and it's looking towards the future. But I, I want my practice to be um, an intuitive relationship with all those non-humans in the now. Mm. So every day looks different. Every hour looks different. Um, we're learning more and more about the hyper-seasonality here. We, we are blessed with a home um, that's almost a pentagram, and it's a lot of windows. And so we get to see the moon rise and go across the sky and set wherever it is in its cycle every night. Our bedroom has, I don't know, 30 windows or something. <laughs> um, and we are also blessed with extraordinary biodiversity, I think for any part of the world, but we're really, it's, we're very fortunate here. So, so yeah, that relationship um, deepens, I hope, and um, becomes more connected to the now uh, you know, right now it's um, what I like to call kind of the high holidays of the harvest. Mm -hmm. um, we also call it pre-compost. That's our one of our jokes about the harvest. But um, so right now, I think 
I'm really leaning in, Curtis and I, and Curtis to what this time of year feels like and looks like and right here on this spot. And it's really dry, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Southern California is so dry anyway. So, um, but yeah, I don't know. Is that an answer? Am I yes. too nonlinear no. an answer? But... No, and that's perfect. <laughs> the nonlinear answer is is a great answer. And I think, you know, what I hear most um what is resonating most in what you say is that sense of immediacy, that that trying um, and that intention to be in the now, like to understand the past, to to understand the looking forward or to try and hold space for both of those, but to be in the now, I think mm-hmm. is is one of the great gifts and callings of our gardens is that yes. they... they um, you know, and their interface with wildlands, and they show us the seasons. They remind us to be present right now because yes. that bloom is only going to last for you know a few days, or that seed head, or that little slant of light, whatever it might be. That now, I certainly believe, as you are saying all of that, that that all of that perspective is infused throughout the new book. I think. The deep, deep observation, which is, I hope, where all the work springs from and, and also inspires in others. So that deep observation when you are really firmly, well, you don't have to be firmly rooted in place, but but of the hyper-seasonality, but then also the non-human relatives, because we're really, we don't, it's funny, we don't have much of a garden. We're really rewilding 13 acres and we have a little kind of sanctuary in the center of olive trees and pepper trees and scented geranium and great grandfather pine, but it's very lavender. But really, the interface between what we've been and rewilding is a funny term because basically it means not doing much of anything and bringing some goats and sheep in. But um, the interface between those is almost non existent here, it's very porous. So when we're looking at everything that's happening in the plant world, like the pomegranates are starting to ripe, the persimmons are ripening enough that the jays are coming to eat them. Um, you know, the queen's heads, Anne's lace heads have gone to seed. The loquats are starting to blossom. That's all intrinsically linked here with, you know, when the orioles are here nesting, when the um, grosbeaks are here, when the banded pigeons like to hang out, when the the bees, we, we mostly water bees more than plants. So I just wanted to say that all that observation in the plant kingdom, it is flora and fauna because they're, as you know, because of your relationship to your garden, it's all happening at the same time. So that's yeah. all I wanted to just add. Yeah. Well, and so what's interesting, and we'll just keep going on this thread for a second. Yeah. When you say you're rewilding and you say you're in deep observation, and you say that's not doing much of anything at all. So it's not really gardening. Like I, I this is a conversation that's in my head yes. all the time right now, Louisa, because rewilding is actually doing something like not yes. gardening the way you used to is still a form of gardening. And I'm getting the chill. Right. And, yeah. and so like part of me, and I understand it's funny because I just last week, had a podcast break about this very subject. Mm -hmm. In my mind, the word gardening includes all of that. 
deep observation, sitting still, listening, looking like that is, is relationship. It's energetic exchange. And that is gardening. I personally want to reclaim the word garden for its biggest sense. And rewilding is, is, is a form of gardening relationship. I don't know if you know Carolyn Casey, but she's a brilliant trickster. Um, She has a radio show also. But anyways, she talks about composting, composting, and composting history, composting information. Mm. And I think we need to reclaim these words. And sometimes maybe we just need to throw them out and go back to words, perhaps in other languages that contain more of the meaning, because we all know that English is pretty narrow and simplistic and that the information that it contains in any given word. And I don't, there's a lot of words that I don't like to use. So this is funny. I don't like the word plant. I don't like the word garden. I don't like the word floral arrangement. You know, we can talk about a verbal reclaiming and um, renaming, but then we can also just look at our relationships. But I agree with you. I couldn't agree more. And when I speak, almost every time I talk, speak publicly or have conversations with my friends who are creatives, I say, look to the garden, the fallow time, look to the fallow time, that we, our culture only looks to productivity Mm. and spring and bloom and what serves us. And we, I think, are maybe one of the first time periods post-industrial revolution where we don't look at every step of the life cycle and that it's not actually defined by our relationship to it. And I could not agree with you more. I think the I I think the reason I address gardening is people assume that we have some big lush mm-hmm. cutting garden or something and nothing could be further from the truth. Except that in rewilding and in like living with this land, you kind of do. It's just not what's in their head. It's more abundant. Right. So that's it. So you know we've had the goats and the sheep I think three times for 10 to 14 days at a time, we have bees, we're you know, very amateur, but we are not, we have used no power equipment at all. Um, and what we're seeing in the biodiversity come back and what our shepherd is seeing, I mean, he's not our shepherd, but the local shepherd, what we are all witnessing of bunch grasses and wildflowers and just the, we've only been here, I don't know, almost three years, but you're right, Jennifer, the biodiversity has increased in a way that our human brains can't even comprehend because we haven't done much of anything and some other, you know, because we're stepping back. And then what we do give water to is things that either produce fruit, um, our herbs, you know, mostly fruit trees, herbs, uh, Oh, and cannabis. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I, anyways, that's a whole nother conversation, but it, it's really interesting when you shift what you value and what you want growing near you and what you're going to give resources to. And I think that's one of the big shifts that we as a society needs to make. Definitely. Definitely. And, and I would change my language around right. these two words I love, garden and plant, mm-hmm. but I haven't found better ones. I agree. So even in other cultures who have much more um, layered and nuanced choices of words for certain things, I have not yet found one. When someone says garden, I think in 
our lexicon or our, yeah. you know, Eurocentric still language. And I think for each person that elicits different things. And you can think of garden in this like Narnia or this like, you know, utopian kind of what you see, you know, when the lights blink out, like what you come home to. There's so many different, or you can think about a horrible suburban garden with pesticides and grass and some, you know, so it's like, I just think what those words elicit contains multitudes. And, and so that's why we keep talking about it. But yeah, I agree with you. Let's look for new words, you know, or, or just keep infusing our existing words with a lot more beauty and depth and diversity that I mean that's the other option you know and okay so this is perfect because that's where images come in too also yes yes (laughs) and this takes us right to punk Ikebana oh my gosh it does so um so first of all maybe can you can you describe how you introduce yourself to an audience uh or (laughs) well I want you to give it a try. You say, <laughs> hi, I'm Louisa. I do uh-huh. this professionally. What do you do? Uh-huh. What do you do? Well, I wish you hadn't asked me that question because <laughs> uh, it's a question that for real, the answer is no, I cannot do that. And it tortures, uh, it doesn't torture me much, but it certainly tortures my agent and my publishing house and anyone, you know what I mean? Yes. The marketing team and uh and maybe just a casual person at a cocktail party who looks at me like I'm in crazy. Um, how would I? Well, here's what I would say, Jennifer. Let's keep coming back to the thesis, which is be here now and place or being in the now and place yeah. and intuition. Yeah. There's a couple of theses and I want to make sure we talk about intuition. I would say that the way I would answer that is different in every time, set and setting, and with different with each person, and based on how I feel that moment, or what I'm focused on, or, and and it's usually longer than anyone wants. So I don't know, I would say I'm a creative, Mm -hmm. um, who has multiple bodies of work or interests, you know, I'm very passionate about my monotypes. Mm -hmm. And and that doesn't get spoken about a lot yet, and it, but it will. Um, I'm very passionate, obviously, about um, visual realms of photography and cinematography and what we can, how as creatives, we can convey so much visually. So I'm very, I'm, I've always been very slanted towards being a visual artist. Um, I'm very passionate about kind of Vendana Shiva and that that realm of um, soil sheds and watersheds. And so I do consider myself a pagan activist, or I don't know, you know, I guess I would say that. I guess that's an okay thing to say. And... Well, I think that's a good observer. start. I don't yeah. know. That's a good start. Oh, and I'll, you know what? I'll say something that's not too nonlinear. I love making books. I want to make books for the rest of my life. I have loved books since my mom taught us to read very young. I believe very, very, very passionately about the printed word, about books on magic, about the spells that we can weave and the experiences we can have. And 
So I love that medium. And I'm just with this book starting to be able to call myself, say that I'm an author. Because I think with the first book, I didn't, I still wasn't super comfortable with that moniker, but I'm starting to be comfortable with that. So that's a good thing to say. <laughs> this is Cultivating Place. This week, we're in conversation with Louisa Roebuck, multimedia and multi-genre, creative, floral artist, printmaker, painter, textile designer, and curator. Her newest book, Punk Ikebana, Reimagining the Art of Floral Design, ushers us into the poignancy of late fall, harvest, and end-of-season transitions and transformations. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break for exactly what Punk Ikebana encompasses. Hey, it's Jennifer. Be here now, the nowness. From my seat, there is no season like late fall to remind us that time and experience is fleeting. And the immense abundance of beauty and plenty offered to us by the world around us is best enjoyed and appreciated right now. Right now, in gratitude. And we're back now to our conversation with artist and author Louisa Roebuck about her newest published work, Punk Ikebana, Reimagining the Art of Floral Design, Gathered, Gleaned, and Composed in Situ. With photography by Ian Hughes and an introduction by O.B. Kaufman, it is a wild wonder of abundance mindset, fully embracing all seasons of life, including senescence and transition well germination right uh, germination is fascinating to you and i you know when i was doing um, my early in the foraging and gleaning floral life that i had in the bay area which all stemmed from place and then um my community around food issues and my organic biodynamic local hyperlocal community a few people started coining this term in relationship to my work punk ikebana and i think that was 2010 maybe mm-hmm. um and then concurrently at the same time i was absorbed into a very interesting and disciplined and just a beautiful Japanese American community in, in the Bay area with Sylvan Nishima Brackett and Rentaro. And I was part of that world, his world, Peko Peko, his catering world. I worked very closely with them because I'd lost everything in the crash. And I became, I started to become aware that there was some, maybe I now think maybe past life resonance with Japanese culture. And, you know, we all can think those things, but then what happened, and I, before I voiced that even to myself, Sylvan and Natsumi and Ryoji and my kind of the people I was closest to in that community and who I really respected, there's the Wren. Oh, Jennifer, the Wren was part of our first interview. They started saying, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I remember just saw that. The Wren. Um, 
they started saying to me, Louisa, your work is really Japanese. Like, why is your work so kind of Pacific Rim, obviously about California, but then Japanese? And they started saying, your work is Ikebana. But in this wild, loose, dangerous, kind of unbridled, uncodified way. And I paid attention to that. It was one of the maybe nicest compliments I'd ever had around my work. And then other people uh, started saying that. And, you know, sometimes when people name it and then you're like, oh, wow. So that's where um, the phrase came from initially was my community. It, it happened organically and it resonated and it stuck. And then I, I went to Japan a couple of times and felt completely at home. And I don't know. I just, I never, I didn't consciously um, think, oh, I'm going to, I want my work to be more Ikebana because I think that's a weird uh, kind of appropriational, arrogant thing to say. You know, it's like the white guys who say they do great ramen. Well, guess what? They usually don't. So I just started working, I think with that in my subconscious. And then when we wanted, I wanted to make another book, I had worked with Vivian Westwood and was starting to see this connection with breaking the rules and looking at codification. And, and Vivian Westwood's a good example because she is classically trained. She understands the history and the history from where her punk springs. So this whole idea of, of that, you know, you can only break the rules if you know the rules. And then layered on that, this whole idea of peace punk and that punk doesn't have to mean violent. It can, but to me, punk is standing up to the dominant paradigm, no matter what it is. And in, in my work, what I think is most punk is standing up to the dominant paradigm of capitalism, consumption, transport, pesticides, Monsanto, uh, you know, water waste, agribusiness. Because most people don't in their work in the floral realms, and it's starting to happen more and more. And I really thank the goddess. Most people don't stand up to those paradigms. So kind of looking at punk and putting on its head, but looking at what punk means to me right now. And I, I, I said in the introduction that you, you usually don't ask people in a movement to define a movement, but I think it is standing up to these dominant paradigms that are just straight up destructive to Mother Earth. Okay, so I want to I want to go back and and unpack just a little bit for listeners to to keep yeah. to stay with us. For for those people who might not be familiar with right. Ikebana of its cultural importance in history. Right. So that's an interesting thing to try to unpack and define and um Ikebana is a, is many different Japanese schools of floral arranging. It goes back mm, probably pre-Edo period. Um, it has its roots in both the temple and the royal court, like everything, like the Vatican, like all the art that happened, you know, around um, the Italian Renaissance art was deeply linked to the Vatican. So similarly, it sprung from temple practices of um, deep observation of place and seasonality and then having floral arrangements as an offering, an altar in the temple. And then the royals and the aristocrats started wanting to have 
flowers in their temples, in their palaces. And then like everything else, it moved down to everyone else so that most Japanese homes have a space, an altar for floral arrangement as an offering to Buddha or the Shinto gods or your ancestors. But then, you know, this is where it gets a little sticky always that we can lot some people say that it goes back to China. So but but that's kind of what we know of Ikebana. And um, like I said, there's many, many schools and some schools resonate more with me than most. So um, is that a good definition of Ikebana? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that no, I okay. think that's lovely. And I think it describes why, as you know, an sort of you know, European descent, white woman in Southern California, you, there is this discomfort of wanting to identify your, your work as Ikebana, but that there is this sort of cultural overlay that isn't your cultural overlay. And, and that gets to, I think, you know, one, one of the um, challenges that are rich and generative right now in our garden world, which is, you know, how do we tell stories and share space with cultures that aren't necessarily ours, but still inform and enrich our lives all around us in this world? So a few things that I would say about that is that there's a proverb, there's nothing new under the sun. So you can right. trace appropriation. That becomes a snake that's eating its own tail. Because if you mm -hmm. go back, that's yep. what I said, like, the Chinese and the Koreans often say that, you know, it would, that Japan appropriated, but any of those, those conversations, it goes back so far that it becomes hard to say at what point everyone's appropriating. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think everybody in the audience will, will have some like nodding head moment where you just spoke about things that call mm -hmm. to us. You know, I, I wasn't, um, you know, yeah, there are certain landscapes that call to us, certain styles that call to us, and they may not on the surface of things be what we understand our homes to be, right. but they call to us like home. And and that, I think that is a, a, a universal um, sensation and, and intuition. Right. And out of humbleness, so, I do not want to take on the cloak of that I am... I don't say that I'm an Ikebana artist or master. So out of humbleness, I'm referencing right. it, right? I'm playing with it. I'm, 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 I revere it, but I don't call myself that. Right. And I think, you know, to, to be honest in anything we do, um, whether it's the food exactly. we cook or the music we listen to, you know, or how we parent our children or grow our gardens, I think the line between appropriation and, and, enrichment yes. or inspiration yes. is credit is trying to understand those references that you just explained to us yes. that's the yes. difference i think so okay back to the actual <laughs> concrete here <laughs> the book the book comes together so i want to just read a couple of the descriptions about the book the punk ikebana reimagining the art of floral design gathered gleaned and composed in situ. And it the the like press sheet, which I think strives and and achieves this certain concreteness that we're looking for right now, is that these are kind of models and and explorations and illustrations done by you 
to inspire other people to be in different perspective and relationship with the the plants and the things all around them. It's not just our plant friends from the garden or the trail. It is this idea of creating a space and a moment of beauty uh, in your own everyday life that will bring to life your dishes, your your vases, your your art, your your walls, your tables, using plant life as well as, you know, some of your curated items in any space. And so the description of this is Louisa Roebuck shows you how to make transcendent eco-lux compositions with seasonal flora foraged and gathered from the West Coast. And I think that mm-hmm. goal and intention that you mentioned about standing up to the idea of capitalism, consumerism, and Transport. you know, that everything is Yes, that everything has to include a lot of embodied energy or cash outlay, that there's this other way to create that same feeling you're looking for when you buy a bouquet of flowers or order a bouquet of flowers. You are you are looking for the like dopamine hit of beauty. And you are showing us another way to 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 achieve that and keep honoring it somehow. Thank you. Yeah, I think to keep it, um, thank you. I think practice is a good word. Um, Mm -hmm. Because if we talk about lineages, I think the idea of a daily practice is coming back into more people's lives again, you know, whether it's drinking your green tea every morning, and then having some moments of silence, or sitting down at the table with your family together are your loved ones um, walking daily, you know, meditation practice of walking. I think this work is obviously always rooted in place and seasonality always. And by seasonality, I mean, height, you know, 52 seasons, right. Or however you want to break it up. But also I, I saw a great quote the other day that the whole world is an altar. And I think Mm -hmm. in the same way, I want to kind of dissolve the boundaries between the outside and the inside. I think in this arranging practice, that's also a practice of sculpture and, and Ikebana also has often had a relationship with different stages of life. So new life and midlife and Mm -hmm. death. I think the practice, what is everyone can bring into their life is is the practice of altars or sacred places in their home where they, based on their own relationship to their home and the land they live near and following their own intuition and their own sense of beauty and their own sense of design and their own sense of line and their own vessels can create these moments that are offerings Mm -hmm. in your Mm -hmm. home. And that duration doesn't matter, you know, that, 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 that offering is of that time and it like, it doesn't need to last two weeks. Um, and it's just, it's a, it's like you said, it's, it's capturing or distilling or representing a moment for you and your home and your place. Um, so that's arranging still, and it's still creating beauty, but it, it's with a very different intention or energy or, um, 
yeah, it's and it's also it's more private because I think this book also I mm-hmm. when I was making notes, of course, I haven't looked at my notes or talked about anything in my notes. I think privacy is something that we've lost touch with in our culture, privacy and darkness. I found mm-hmm. I've been reading Ursula Le Guin mm-hmm. and one of the folklores that she's that I just read, and I can't remember the title of the short story. Part of the cosmology is you don't ask anyone their name and you don't tell anyone your name. And I think that we, I hope this book conveys a sense of privacy, the kind of like private practice you can have in your home that of course you share with others, but that it doesn't feel performative. This is Cultivating Place. This week, we're in conversation with Louisa Roebuck, artist, author, and curator. Her newest book, Punk Ikebana, Reimagining the Art of Floral Design, Gathered, Gleaned, Composed, in situ, ushers us into the poignancy of late fall harvest and end-of-season transitions and transformations, urging us to be right where we are right now. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. Hey, it's Jennifer. So for those of you who were in attendance at the California Native Plant Society's Conservation Conference this past week in San Jose, what a thrilling, forward-looking biodiversity of humans who came together there. I promise for listeners more of an update on this soon, including an upcoming series focused on the 30 by 30 conservation efforts being rolled out all around us. But for now, I wanted to sit a little longer with this idea of nowness, of smallness, of enoughness, being so much more than plenty. Throughout Punk Ikebana, Louisa offers out emotive, imagistic haikus paired with and complementing as well as supplementing the floral compositions and creative imagery and the longer narrative of the book. These haikus, I think, embody this idea of now and enough and plenty, like a seed embodies the wholeness of a plant and its lives, past and future. Here's one I loved on our native sacred angel trumpets, Datura Radii. Datura, bright from home, fading fast, death does not diminish. Hmm. With the new moon on last Tuesday, the 25th, I wish you all a happy All Hallows Eve, Halloween, Sawin, Day of the Dead, and crossing the threshold into November. And we're back now to our conversation with artist and author Louisa Roebuck, speaking with us about her newest work, Punk Ikebana, with photography by Ian Hughes and introduction by Obi Kaufman. Punk Ikebana works from the idea of traditional Ikebana, 
the way of flowers, which has been studied formally in Japan and beyond for centuries. In Punk Ikebana, Louisa explains and riffs on the art form's classic rules and then demonstrates how to seasonally, sensually, and meaningfully bend them and blend them into your own life. There's a really seminal book in Praise of Shadows, and I might mangle the author's name, Junichiro Tanazaki. And uh, Lenny Brackett's home is, he's a certified Japanese temple builder, the first American, I think, in the Sarah Foothills. And it is exactly like being in a home in the country in Japan. And in fact, two of my Japanese friends here said to me upon seeing the chapter, did you go shoot in Japan? which mm. also was high praise, but so off the grid, you have to build a fire to take a bathtub. And we were there on the new moon when it's most dark. So um, mm. speaking of set and setting in praise of shadows for to snatch away for us, even the darkness beneath trees that stand deep in the forest is the most heartless of crimes. I would call back, at least for literature, this world of shadows we are losing. In the mansion called literature, I would have the eaves deep and the walls dark. I would push back into the shadows, the things that come forward too clearly. I would strip away the useless decoration. I do not ask that this be done everywhere, but perhaps we may be allowed at least one mansion where we can turn off the electric lights and see what it is like without them. And we live up here with dark sky. We entertain a lot. We have a lot of dinner parties and there's no outside lighting. Yeah. None. Well, candles. But so anyway, so I just, you know, I, I think that you understand in a really deep way. I know you do that. The thesis is not, it is about flower ranging, but it, it really is not also. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's about, it's about living. It's about living fully. And that includes um, shadows and death and, death yeah. and, and decay and rebirth yeah. and, and composting and, um, and everything in between. Right. right. And it's about arranging everything our minds yeah. and our hearts and, um, and our, our energetic spaces more fully somehow. Well, unless people think I'm too gothic, because I do lean towards moody and gothic, but I also deeply, deeply, deeply celebrate the dew-drenched rose and mm. the new, you know, buckeye shoots and the passion mm. flower tendrils and you know, fennel when it's shooting up bright, bright, bright green. I mean, you know, spring onions and in this chapter, we have, we were so lucky. We were there when, when you know, the trillium and the Kit Kit Dizzy and the wild rose and all these, you know, Sarah Foothill spring flowers of the forest floor were blooming and the dogwood was blooming. So I think for me, that, that relationship and that juxtaposition of exactly new life, you know, the rose bloom, you know, and everything in between the decayed seed pod is where it all lives. And um, 
Oh, and I wanted to go back to Ian because the the germination of this book really was Ian was one of our colleagues and friends here in Ojai. And we just started shooting together. We just started shooting together. And we, because of the world that we've been living in, that we were living in for some of the past three years, we were able to create in our compound, really in our home for, you know, a year, year and a half. So the, this book, all my books are, I mean, the first two books have been completely shot in California, but a great deal of this book was shot at home with Ian, who became part of our tribe. And so his brilliant, intuitive capturing of the work was because we were actually kind of living together part-time and having dinner together and he would spend the night Mm -hmm. and we would, you know, so I think that's something also that I, that these things, I think, come through the imagery, but, you know, it's hard to articulate, like being in that kind of compound, private place for a year and a half or two and creating. And then we did obviously take some field tricks, but that's a really rich experience that was of that moment of that time. Yeah. So the book comes together it is richly photographed uh, by Ian and of your your curated composition arrangements, um, moments of practice through this whole handful of different sites and spaces and places. Well, and can I just add, and also some of yeah. what he shot was just what was happening in our home. Right, it wasn't right, arranged. right. It was arranged maybe three months before, like... A lot of it's just documented what was happening in the home. Yeah. So go on. I'm sorry, Jennifer, to interrupt. Yeah. No, no, no. And and ultimately, um, it's a it's a big book. It's maybe mm, 15 by 24. I mean, it's, it's a big. big book. Yeah. Yeah. And and like the word that keeps coming to mind as I hold the book, which has a, a beautiful textured co- uh, cover with um, embossed sort of gold overlay onto the image, um, redolent. That's mm. the word that like keeps coming to mind because it's, you know, it, it of course is not aromatic or fragrance, but it brings <laughs> to mind the heft of, of the meat of life in, in a way. Yeah. When you look back, and there's a beautiful introduction written by oh, Obi Kaufman, yeah. yeah, that that adds to the atmosphere and the takeaways of the book and the 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 hopes for for inspiring this level of practice in our relationship to our plant friends and and our places. But when you look back on the whole process and you hold this book in your hands and and you think about you know, as um, kind of flighty as we've been in this conversation, I think there's some importance in that too, symbolically. And what are your greatest hopes for what some human out there holding this book will will be infused with themselves, Louisa? Well, um, I want to, before I say anything about hopes, I just want to thank um Cameron Books because you know we worked with Cameron Books as is our publisher and they're based in Petaluma 
right? Mm -hmm. So California Heritage Press, but they stewarded this book with us and created this book with us and collaborated on this book with us in the most extraordinarily collaborative, um, passionate, full of craft process that I could ever imagine. And our design team, the editorial team, you know, everybody uh, who, who, you know, you know, a book, every book takes hundreds of people to make it. Really. Yes, I mean, it it's does. Yes, it does. And it almost feels strange talking about it by myself because the amount of collaborators, you know, the joke was that my, I think my acknowledgements page is over is two, my acknowledgements are two pages long, but hmm. Cameron books really crafted this with us with such mm -hmm. dedication. The experience people are having with this book is so much a testimony to how it was made. And I also am eternally indebted to Obi, um, you know, for his Ford. Um, and in fact, I want to read an Obi really quote, quote really quickly, and then I'm going to talk about my hopes. Um, so Obi texted a couple of days ago, the new book is climbing up into a collective conscious through us right now. Punk Ikebana feels like a rainbow lizard in my throat that somehow has the voice of a songbird, but in opening its eyes sees purple and thinks that good and evil might not exist at all. And I can't explain why that resonated so strongly with me. But I think that collective unconsciousness is really, it's always been part of my creative life of, of trying to pay attention to that, you know, through my intuition. But it, I hope that our collective consciousness right now is moving us more towards mother nature and in awareness that there is no separation, that we are not separate from nature. And I hope that in having an emotional and I hope intellectual experience with this book, which is printed on paper, and I've that that moves people to have a deeper connection to their place and to steward place in a different way and make different decisions around, you know, maybe I don't want roses grown in Ecuador coated with pesticides and you know, water usage that would make any of us cringe and then sprayed again and refrigerated and flown to the flower mart. I, I hope that this experience opens up people's eyes and people's hearts to do no harm as much as we can. You know, it's challenging these days. Um, and I also, you know, I like to quote other people. Um, Richard Powers you know, of course, overstory. And his book has changed so many lives. I mean, I could only hope to have a fingernail of the influence he has. But I read a quote and I, I couldn't find it for the interview, but he said of all the compliments he's ever received and the testimonies, you know, from that book, the one that was most powerful to him was that you have this book and your words and 
this being, because a book is alchemy. A book becomes more than, it becomes a, becomes a, a an entity that's the sum of all the people who created it, right? And mm-hmm. so he, he said, I hope that this book, no, no, I'm sorry, a, a, a fan, someone who'd read it said, your book opened my eyes to seeing things in a way I never had before. And so I think just that deep seeing and love that comes from deep observation. And then I hope stewardship, whatever that means, that, that's my hope. That's my hope. It's a beautiful, beautiful, active meditation, prayer, and blessing. And I thank you very much for both Punk Ikebana and being a guest on Cultivating Place today, Louisa. Thank you, Jennifer. Really, a joy as always. Thank you. Louisa Roebuck is a multimedia, multi-genre, creative, floral artist, printmaker, painter, textile designer, curator, and author. Her newest work, Punk Ikebana, Reimagining the Art of Floral Design, is out from Cameron Books on November 8th. With photography by Ian Hughes and an introduction by O.B. Kaufman, you definitely want to make sure to check out this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com for many beautiful images from this hefty, heartfelt experience of a book. You will sink into them like we gardeners sink into this season of late fall, heading into the leading edge of winter. Oh, I love you more and more. Speaking of plants and place and season, I want to continue with my theme of late summer grasses because among the many plants who invite us to revel in the beauty of late season, of senescence and abundance, our native and ornamental grasses are surely in high season. And this week, perhaps because of my recent wanderings across California, through the Great Basin, and into the Southwest and the Painted Desert, let's talk about the drop seeds, the genus Sporobolus. With 150 species, some annuals, some perennials, in the genus as a whole, and with native ranges across the U.S., Eurasia, Africa, and Australia, This is another group bound to have at least one family member appropriate to your garden, although pay attention to the non-native Sporobolus for you and any of their tendencies toward invasive behavior before planting them in your region. Some of the great North American drought-adapted species include prairie dropseed, pine dropseed, spike dropseed, sand dropseed, mesa dropseed. As is often the case, the names of these grasses, both the Latin and the common names, give us hints into where they grow and how they grow. The Latin name Sporobolus apparently means to throw seed, and each common name refers to where or what conditions each species tends to grow and then drop or throw their seeds. Sporobolus virginiflorus 
native across much of North America, is also known as poverty grass, so dubbed apparently during the Dust Bowl years when it was one of the few grasses to thrive on the impoverished, human-disturbed soils of the Great Plains. The Sporobolus genus also includes the impressive, larger-clumped and taller-flowered, deep-rooted saccatone grasses, Sporobolus aeroides, also known as alkali saccatone, and Sporobolus radii, also known as giant saccatone. While the saccatone grasses will carry weight and majestic focal power in any garden or landscape, my heart still skips a beat for the smaller, more open, warm-season prairie and pine drop seeds. Their airy flower and seed heads like quirky, dainty candelabras fill and soften the spaces between. The spaces between and across the Great Basin, in the desert, in the scrub of mountain slopes, in a vase, because you know I love that, and in the spaces between your beloved habitat garden. As with most grasses adapted to dryland areas of extreme highs, lows, wind, and other weather, the drop seeds like to be cut back in late spring, after the winter wildlife have foraged and nested among them just as their first green shoots are beginning to peek out. For my full conversation with Louisa and more information and links for information on the drop seeds, head on over to cultivatingplace.com, where you will find this week's show notes and all of that under the podcast tab. Join us again next week when we kick off November in conversation with the horticultural team at Filoli Historic House and 16-Acre Garden in Woodside, California. They are striving toward environmental and cultural practices to generously pay their long history of privilege forward, just in time for the generous season in front of us here in the Northern Hemisphere. Join us. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by generous listeners just like you through the support button at cultivatingplace.com. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and weekly tech support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, Enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.